Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come in and know that you are welcome. Yes, strip the sweaters. It's chilly out there, I know, but in the nook, it's warm in a cozy-ish sort of way. Settle in, grab such drink and goodies as is your wont. Snuggle with a chum of choice, sit back and close your eyes because we have a show for you tonight. My name is Lawrence Santoro. This is Tales to Terrify, and I have this hope for thought that you already knew that. But in case there was a question... The truth is now out there. So, it is that time of year again. We are nudging up to that weekend, that date. This time it's June 15. This year the event is in New Orleans. In case you wondered, I'm talking about that time when a certain group of writers from around the, well, the principally English-language horror-writing world begin to look into their mirrors and think... What will I say if I win? What will I say if I don't win? But that, of course, is ridiculous. I'm going to win, aren't I? Should I I thank my agent, my editor, my wife-slash-husband-slash-lover who encouraged, who helped, who dumped me? Should I just say, thanks, it's about time? Oh, well, what's the point? I'm never going to win. But maybe I will. I'm talking, of course about those writers nominated for one or more of the annual Bram Stoker Awards given by the Horror Writers Association, the HWA. And here is a gratuitous brag. I've been nominated twice. I have lost twice. 
But I will say in utter candor, it was an incredible honor to have been among the five or six writers shortlisted for those awards. As it does every year, this year's Bram Stoker nominations have brought us a rich, heady crop of horrid joy, and several old chums and friends of Tales to Terrify are shortlisted this Stoker season. Way back when, uh, when, you ask? Why, when we were but ten weeks old, Tales to Terrify took it upon itself to do a brace of shows devoted to all of that year's nominees in the short fiction category. Short fiction, as defined in the bylaws covering the Stokers, is horror fiction at or under 7,499 words in length. Why that limit, you ask? Because at 7,500 words, the long fiction category begins. Last year's short fiction Stoker went to Stephen King. His story, Herman Woke is Still Alive, the which I believe he still is, came in at just under 7,000 words. It was and remains an excellent tale. It is a tale of the horror of dashed hope and lost dreams. I did the narration for that tale, and I must say, I would have been hard-pressed to predict the winner from among those six finalists that year. Well, that was then, this is now, and these are this season's nominees for Superior Achievement in Short Fiction. Hundreds of writers, thousands of stories literally distilled to these five. The five, in no significant order, are... Well, maybe it's just the order in which we received them. Or maybe it's the order in which we got the recorded versions of them. I don't... Well, hmm. You see, one reason why we'll probably never be Stoker nominated? <laughs> yes, other than the fact that there's no category for podcasts, but I digress again. The five Stoker-nominated short fictive pieces this year are Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens by Joe McKinney, which will be read for us this evening by Stephen Kilpatrick. It comes in at just under 29 minutes, Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens was published in Best of Dark Moon Digest from Dark Moon Books. This year, by the way, Joe has his name attached to five, count them, five Stoker nominations. One for Fiction Collection, two for Long Fiction, one for Superior Achievement for a Novel, and this one. Next, Surrounded by the Mutant Rainforest is by an old friend of the show, Bruce Boston. Bruce may be best known to all of us as a distinguished poet. We've featured, I can't remember how many of his poems on tales. This year, Bruce is nominated for three Stokers, two in poetry categories and one for Surrounded by the Mutant Rainforest, which, coming in at a lean, succinct 13 and a half minutes, as read by Stephen Thomas Howell, is the shortest of the short fictions in this year's shortlisted tales. It was first published in Daily Science Fiction. Science Fiction. Hmm. Our third nominee, and the final one featured in this week's visit to the Nook, will be Available Light by John Palisano. 
and will be narrated for us by Jacob Boris. Available Light will run about 31 minutes and harks from issue number 12 of the Lovecraft e-zine of March 2012. John Palisano has two nominations in this year's Stoker race, one for novel and this for short fiction. The other two nominees, Lucy Snyder's Magdala Amygdala and Old Chum Weston Oaks's Righteous will be next week's offering here in the nook. Okay, settle down now. I am going to proceed somewhat differently tonight and next week. We'll present the stories with a minimum of me between offerings, and I'll give you biographical information and such at the end of all three readings— kind of like a credit roll in films that I and two or three other always irritating people sit through to the end and block the aisles, because we believe that the people that make it all happen deserve to be acknowledged, even in passing. Okay. First, tonight, is Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens by Joe McKinney, and is read for us by Stephen Kilpatrick. I will see you in 28 minutes and 51 seconds. John rolls double fours. He lifts his marker, the old shoe, his favorite, from Go and drops it on to... Vermont Avenue, where the zombies are drifting thick as fog through the cracked and weedy streets, picking their way through the rusting hulks of abandoned cars, searching, always searching, for food. The mother catches sight of one in particular, broken arms swinging limply at his side, ribs showing through tatters of decomposing flesh, flies swarming about its head, and she's worried. She's seen these before, the wounded ones, the ones that can get around more or less on their own power are predictable. They come straight for you, attack without strategy. But the wounded ones, like this one, are far more dangerous. They hide. They wait. They became part of this desiccated world, one of its hidden dangers. She knows if she loses sight of it, it will surface again when she least expect it. She sets the wheelbarrow down quietly and finds her daughter's hand. She gives the girl's hand a squeeze just to let her know everything is going to be okay. She doesn't believe this, but she knows she has to be strong for the child's sake, and shows he squeezes encouragement. The little girl meets her mother's gaze and smiles. It's a pretty smile, lots of healthy teeth. She's a pretty girl, too good for this world. The mother surveys her surroundings and shudders. Everywhere she looks, she sees a world in ruins. So many buildings have been reduced to rubble, but where the walls still stand, she sees exposed lathe and standing garbage and doorways without doors. Not a window has gone unbroken. A sign that reads pedestrian crossing has been bent over and nearly flattened by an out-of-control vehicle, which still rests within the ruins of a dress shop, busted glass all around it, catching the orange and scarlet reds of morning light like an explosion frozen in time. Inside the car is a corpse, motionless and decomposed, but probably only dormant. Given a reason, it could walk again. In the wheelbarrow is the body of the woman's dead husband. 
The woman, on the night the man died, went to great trouble jamming an ice pick up the dead man's nose to make sure he wouldn't come back as one of them. It was an agreement between them, something she never wanted to think about, let alone do, but did anyway when the time came, because she loved the man with a love so deep it made her ache inside. She still aches. She aches all the time. Even when she's numb, she aches. She's told the daughter none of this, and has no intention of doing so. She's told the girl only of the dead man's enigmatic wish to have his heart buried at Marvin Gardens, though now, as she looks around at the wasted landscape that is Atlantic City, and watches as the zombie with the broken arms and the flies swarming about his head wanders off, she wonders why. Why this place? John buys Vermont Avenue. At $100, it's a no-brainer. The cheap properties on the first leg of the square are good buys. Purchase cheap, build hotels, gouge your opponent later. They are investments in the future. It is the strategy of a man who thinks long thoughts, who goes deep into the future of things. That's John on Monopoly, the studied approach, the logical approach. I am different. I am the wild scramble opponent, the one who buys, 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 and worries about building hotels later once I see what I've got to work with. We have never decided who is right, John and I. He rolls a puny 2-1 combo, but it is enough to skip over jail and land him at St. Charles Place, where the weeds grow up through the sidewalks and the streets have buckled and blistered since the world gave way to zombies. There are no apartments here, no casinos, no hotels. This is an urban wasteland of vacant lots and mounds of trash and the occasional dog sniffing out a rat among the piles of lumber and brick dotting the landscape. Nothing of any substance grows here, only grass and weeds. And the woman carrying the wheelbarrow and the mysteries of good men dead and the little girl with her hand clasped tightly around her belt can only stare around in wonder and confusion and bootless anger at the injustice of it all. Why here, she asks the corpse in front of her, why, for the love of God, here? The game is just part of the reason I've asked John to come over. I'm a little worried about my kids. They fight with each other constantly. John, he's a wizard at things like this. The man has a way of getting to the heart of things. He's made it his life's work, understanding people, and especially kids. It's nothing serious, I tell him, nothing bad. They don't do drugs. They don't try to hurt themselves. Nothing like that. They're just little kids, I say. I know that, but damn it, they fight like two little beta fish. Put them next to each other, and the next thing you know, they're just trying to claw each other's eyes out. Exactly, John says, and meets my questioning gaze and won't look away. Huh? I say. Exactly, he repeats. It's nothing like that. I shake my head. I know he's parroting what I've just said, like any good psychologist, but I don't understand. It's nothing like that, he repeats. Not at all. They're good girls. They're your girls. Part of you. They love you and you love them. Yes, I agree, but with the hope that it'll explain more. Remember that, even when you're mad, even when you feel like you're not getting through, they are part of you and you are part of them. You may not think you're getting through, but you're imprinting yourself on them. Years from now, they won't remember why they fought or even that they fought at all, but they will remember you. It's pretty simple when you boil it down to what really matters. I don't have an immediate response. It's true, every word. Everything he said is right on the money, but it's a hard thing to remember when you're mad. 
It's your turn, I say. On Illinois Avenue, the mother has to move quickly. Screams, the sound of fighting, fill the air. She pushes the wheelbarrow between two ruined cars and pulls her child underneath the lead vehicle. From their hiding spot, they can see the street, smell the tinge of death on the morning breeze. Soon, the screams of rage and desperation turn to panic. Whoever they are about to meet is close, very close. A young woman, her left arm limp at her side and blood running down her body, runs into the street. Three men, zombies, stagger out of the alley behind her. These men have fresh blood running from their mouths, and the mother knows they have just fed. They'll be strong, but they'll also be focused on the young woman. The mother's heart is a good one, and it's telling her to go help the woman. But she's smart, and her head is telling her to stay down, stay quiet, keep the child quiet. She has responsibilities, and they extend far beyond this moment. Her child whispers as the zombies fall upon the woman. The young woman's screams seem louder than any human could possibly make, and they go on and on and on. The mother can only put her face in the dust and hold her baby and tell her that there must be a reason. There has to be a reason, or else nothing in life makes sense. And it has to make sense. It has to. John buys Illinois Avenue for $240, looks at me, and smiles. You bastard, I say. He has just secured two-thirds of the board. He raises his eyebrow, like Spock, only it's not a casual sign of surprise that the universe is not as logical as it should be, but a smug, self-satisfied gesture that denotes imminent victory. He knows he has me. You bastard, I say. Your turn, he says. John has me over a barrel. He has both boardwalk and park place, and I have surprisingly little. Not for the first time, I wonder about the fickleness of luck. Damn it, I say. I surrender. He nods. He's not above enjoying a victory. A pity, though, he says. What? He nods at the board. Nobody got Marvin Gardens. I've always wondered about that place. The mother has studied this place. She knows the history of Illinois Avenue because this isn't the first time she's wondered about her husband's fascination with Atlantic City. She knows the city started as a dream, a conversation among wealthy investors and railroad tycoons on a lonely, windswept beach, and how it ended as a nightmare, like the rest of the world, like her own life. She knows that the city died long before the rest of the world fell beneath the relentless tread of the walking dead. The zombies are really only an afterthought to this place. They are the symbols of a world that has moved on, but they are redundant here. This place needs no reminder of the glory of the past, or of the wasteland that is the modern age. She looks down at the body in the wheelbarrow, the man whose eyes had shown such surprise, such fear, such unknowable depth at the time of his passing, and who were now closed against all time, and she wondered what was in his mind when he asked to be buried at Marvin Gardens. Did he see the old world splendor that R.B. Osborne saw back in 1852 when he glibly described his visions to his investors, his pen scribbling out the names of the city to be? Oriental Avenue, States Avenue, Tennessee Avenue, New York Avenue, Pennsylvania Avenue? Or did he see the world of Charles B. Darrow, who stole the game of Monopoly from Lizzie Maggie, daughter of the prophet of the single tax theory? It is hard to tell. For her husband, who was so kind, so intelligent, so impossibly giving, was also, sometimes frustratingly so, an enigma to her. 
She looks at the only map of the city she has, an old Monopoly game board, and doesn't understand. She wonders if she ever will. Why this place? Why would he want to be buried at Marvin Gardens? The crowd of zombies seem to materialize out of nowhere. One moment the mother is putting on her brave face for her daughter, telling her how they are going to bury daddy in his favorite place, and the next she is ducking for cover, pulling her daughter close to her breast. She'd been forced to leave the wheelbarrow out in the open, and it made her mad. It seemed like a failure somehow, like leaving him was a weakness on her part, something she didn't do right. But the zombies don't like dead flesh. They rarely touch a corpse, even a fresh one, and so it's a chance she feels she can take. The zombies pass a wheelbarrow by. They hardly seem to notice it. One by one they shuffle past it, dragging their feet, pulling their weight endlessly through a world without meaning, without purpose, without even the hint of redemption. Even the grave is an empty promise for those dead ones. Then one of the zombies stumbles and howls in pain. Mother and daughter raise their heads above the tall weeds where they've taken shelter searching for the injured one. Zombies don't make noises like that. They damage themselves all the time, tearing hands and arms, reaching through shattered windows, shredding bare feet on busted glass, and then they get up and walk away, soundlessly. No emotion, no pain, no nothing. But this one, he is standing up, holding his bleeding wrist in his other hand. One by one, the dead turn their heads slowly in his direction. Faker, the mother thought, and pushed her daughter's head back down into the tall weeds. She has seen these fakers before. They live by pretending they are one of the dead, by walking among the dead. They live, if they can be called living, by abandoning all sense of self, by surrendering completely to the emptiness and pointlessness that is life and death. Death on two feet. They live by giving up. Her husband hated these people. She looked down at his corpse, the runner of dried blood eking from his left nostril where she drove in the ice pick to keep him from coming back as a zombie and she sees a man who lived his life like every moment mattered, who understood the importance of his life, even if he didn't fully grasp its meaning. His life stood for something, and his death was painful, and too soon, for the truly good are always gone too soon. She looked again to the street. Already the zombies are closing in around the faker, moaning, clutching at the air in anticipation of the kill to come, and she feels nothing but disgust. Her husband never would have given up like that. Never. She watched the man sink to his knees. She watches him drop his head to his chest rather than lash out with the last breath he has. The mother cradles the child's head in her hands, covering her eyes. But she herself does not look away, because what's going on out there reminds her so much of how strong her husband was and how much is gone from the world. She doesn't like it, doesn't want to admit it, but the faker's silent acceptance of death makes her feel a powerful sense of pride in her husband. He was a man worth having. Our second game has gone down smoothly, like a fine whiskey. As usual, John has picked up a lot of properties through his slow and studied method, but it has cost him. He has property, but little development, and he has next to no cash held in reserve. I, on the other hand, am sitting pretty, fat on cash. I have three houses on Pacific Avenue, and when he lands there and counts his cash, he has no choice but to concede. Too bad I didn't land on Marvin Gardens, he says. I look up as I clear the board. I like Marvin Gardens, he says, catching the look in my eye. It's special. I wait for more, but it doesn't come. 
After a pause, I finish clearing the board. The mother knows what's coming, even before she passes the jail. She can hear the zombies banging their fists against the chain-link fence. She can hear the musical clanging it makes, even over the awful moaning of the dead. She doesn't look at them as she passes down the alleyway. They are sticking their shredded fingers through the diamond-patterned wire, surging against it, pressing against it with the combined weight of their dead bodies, but she ignores them. All she does is move her daughter to her other side, putting herself between the little girl and the hungry dead. The little girl is brave. She doesn't shrink or break down, the way some adults the mother has seen have done. This makes her proud. But the thing that really strokes her pride is the way the little girl hitches her backpack up onto her shoulders, looks up, and smiles. So young and so brave. It's then the zombies break through the fence. It had seemed so secure just seconds ago, but now it's leaning over into the alley like a drawbridge caught on the way down, and the dead are pouring over it, filling up the alley behind her. And now, in front of her, too. The mother has no choice. She gently lowers a wheelbarrow down. Even in death, she can't imagine dropping him. Then, before the child can speak a word, she scoops her up into her arms and runs away, leaving the body of the man she loves in the middle of the alley. He'll be safe. The dead don't attack the dead. Even the newly dead seem to not exist for them. Only the living, only those with pain in their heads and love still in their hearts seem like food to them. The mother finds a bakery with a large oven and puts her daughter in it. Deer hide their yearlings in the tall grass she remembers from the years she lived in the Texas Hill Country. Perhaps it will work now. And some atavistic impulse seems present in the daughter as well, for she understands without words. She doesn't ask questions, but instead sinks into the darkness at the back of the oven. From the depths, her brown eyes seem to shine like jewels under halogen vapor lights. She is so vulnerable, so beautiful, so incredibly trusting. The mother hopes she knows what she's doing. I'll be right back, she says. I'm going to get daddy. She slips off her own backpack and removes a collapsible police baton she got from a friend during the early days of the outbreak. She snaps it open and circles back around the city jail so she can re-enter from the other side. When she steps back into the alley, she sees a small group of zombies gathered around her husband's corpse. They seem uncertain, but interested, as though they just might fall upon the body. When one of them lifts her husband's hand and tries to put it in his mouth, the woman rushes in like a fury and swings at every face and hand that tries to close upon her. It's a fast job, a messy job and she hardly registers the dull crack of flesh-covered bone, the give of skulls as they cave beneath the baton. And when it's done, she jams the baton down on the pavement and collapses it with a sharp smack. She looks around. Nothing else moves. Then she picks up the wheelbarrow that holds her husband's body and carts him out of the alley. We're thirty minutes into our third game, and I have John handily by the throat, Pacific, North Carolina and Pennsylvania are dull properties, never seeming to gather much action, but they are the only properties I have left without hotels, and so I start to develop them. John, realizing he's beat, concedes. The woman is looking down North Carolina Avenue into the heart of the city. It is a vast ruin of empty buildings and darkened windows. This could be a war zone, abandoned to the scavengers. It looks that bad. Roofs have fallen, bricks are strewn about as though thrown by an explosion. But this isn't some military scar. The city, this collection of empty buildings, is a product of decay, a complex rune speaking of all things past. 
Dark clouds rolling in off the sea, turning the sky to a washed-out gray. The wind carries sand down the cracked and buckled street, lifting it like curtains dancing on the wind, and the city seems so lonely, almost sublime in its desolation. Again, she wonders why his last wish has brought her here. What could he have possibly seen in this world? He was a kind man, a caring man who knew that there is a presence moving in the background of our lives. That presence is hard to fathom, especially now, especially since her husband's death, but it is there. She can feel it. Her husband never doubted it, and because of that conviction, she knew there must be a reason. Mama, you're all gross. The woman looked down at her daughter, her voice surprising her out of her thoughts. What? The girl points at the spattered gore on the woman's jeans, the clumps of blood and brain left from where she'd fought the zombies off her husband's corpse. She wipes her palm across her shirt, clearing away the dirt and sweat and grime before taking her daughter's hand and giving it another reassuring squeeze. We're going to be okay, she says, and in her soul she tries to believe it, because she has to. She needs this one truth to be real. She takes out the game board she's been using as a map, her gaze darting back and forth between the cartoon board and the sea of ruin before her, and she's confused. Marvin Gardens must be here somewhere. According to the board, it should be right here. We started our fourth game. Most people think Monopoly takes forever to play, but with just two players and a deep understanding of its finer points, you can finish off a game in less than 20 minutes and still stay soundly within the rules. This one is going fast, and John's luck is getting on my nerves. He takes Boardwalk and Park Place. He looks at me, sees me scowling, and laughs. To lighten my mood, he asks me about my writing. More zombies? Yep. And death cults, too? Cool. I like discussing horror with John. He gets it. After reading a rough draft of my first novel, he told me zombies were the perfect means to reinvent the world and all its problems. They're entirely metaphorical, more so than any other monster in fiction, and because of that, they can represent any societal issue or any personal crisis. They turn the real horrors into a fictional plaything we can wrap our minds. As I said, he gets it. But meanwhile, there is still a game to be played, and I've just landed on Ventnor Avenue, where he has four houses. Stop smiling, I say, and concede. Game five is our tiebreaker. We race around the board, and I get Ventnor and Atlantic Avenues, and then Waterworks. Only Marvin Gardens remains unclaimed. John looks worried. The woman stands in the shadow of a movie theater entrance, watching a death cult make its way down the street. These people, she understands even less than the fakers. At least the fakers are a known quantity. Their motivation is simple. Death terrifies them so much that they're willing to embrace it in order to hold it at bay. She can understand fear. And she can understand, even though it disgusts her, why some people are trying to give up on their lives in order to keep them. But these people... These death cults, they are a mystery. She has heard of them in other cities. They believe that the zombies are a means to set the soul free. The zombies are prophets, they claim, and they welcome the act of getting slaughtered as though it were communion. This cult is made up of a dozen people, walking two abreast down the street. They seem eerily content and unworried. They are happy to die. Zombies stagger out of doorways, peel themselves away from the insides of abandoned cars, and close in on the cult. Screams come with the killing, but they are not screams of pain. 
When the woman realizes this, she is truly and utterly horrified. These people are in love with their own slaughter, and for them it is some kind of grotesque joy. It is spiritual. It seems vile to her, obscene, somehow. Come on, the woman says to her daughter. She takes up the wheelbarrow again and slips away. John takes his fourth railroad, but looks disappointed. What's wrong? I ask. He's pulling ahead, and the tiebreaker that I thought was mine seems to be tilting in his direction. I want Marvin Gardens, he says. I keep missing it. You said that before. What's so special about it? It's the only place on the board that isn't a real location in Atlantic City. Really? I look at the board. I didn't know this. I've loved this game since I was a little boy, and I never knew. I wonder why they'd put it there if it isn't really there. Well, it's a mystery, isn't it? The woman and child have made it to the boardwalk. The long pier extends far out into the Atlantic, which has grown irritable from the weather. Mama, the girl says, where do we go now? The woman has no idea. None of this makes sense. Why would he make this request of her, and why can't she find Marvin Gardens? Acting almost on autopilot, she pushes the wheelbarrow out to the end of the pier and stops before a bronze plaque featuring a raised relief of Charles B. Darrow, inventor of the game of Monopoly. Briefly, she considers asking Darrow where she might find Marvin Gardens, but doesn't want to scare the little girl. No need to make her think Mom's lost her mind. A strong wind gusts off the waters and shoves her roughly to one side. She staggers, and the wheelbarrow topples over, spilling out its precious cargo onto the pier. The woman looks down at her husband sprawled there, and she finally breaks down. She sits down beside him. She's so tired. She has no way of lifting him back into the wheelbarrow. Not now. Not like this. She doesn't know what to do. She hears footsteps on the planks behind her. The woman jumps to her feet and wheels to face the intruder, pulling her daughter behind her. But it's an old man, not a zombie. She relaxes, but only a little. There are other dangers in this world besides walking dead. But the man makes no move to attack. He actually looks kind. He's dressed in a full-length black coat, the collar pulled up tightly against a scarred cheek. The brim of a floppy old hat shields gray, weathered eyes. Let me help you, he says. Together, they right the wheelbarrow. Then, the old man, with strength that surprises her, lifts John's body back into the wheelbarrow. He is very gentle about it, too. There is another gust of wind, and then the rain starts to fall. We need to get under shelter, he says. He's holding his hat down on his head as he nods towards a nearby arcade. The inside is dark, but dry. In there, he says. She reaches for the wheelbarrow, but he puts a hand on her wrist. No, he says. Leave him there. She wants to object. At first, it seems like gross disrespect of the man she loved, and still loves, with all her being. But as the rain turns to silvery sheets curling on the wind, it suddenly seems right to her, and the three of them run for the cover of the arcade. The little girl knows the routine. They won't be going anywhere for a while, so she removes her backpack and sits on the ground and makes herself busy with the few belongings they've been able to carry with them. Thank you, the woman says to the man. He nods, says nothing. The man removes his coat and hat and shakes the water from them. Can you help us? The woman says. We're trying to find Marvin Gardens. 
The man looks up from his clothes and a strange smile tugs at the corner of his mouth. There is no Marvin Gardens, he says. Not here, anyway. Not in Atlantic City. The woman is floored by this. Her first instinct is to get angry. She's been lied to, made a fool of. Why would her husband do this to her? Why would he send her on an errand like this, wandering a blasted land with only a stupid board game for a map? It doesn't make sense. Bubbles! The woman shakes her head, clearing her thoughts. Dozens of tiny bubbles are rising from the floor, filling the air around her head. She looks down and sees her daughter clapping her hands and giggling wildly as her little bubble-making machine whirs. One bubble in particular drifts past the woman's nose. She focuses on it, and she's startled by its beauty, the way it shimmers and catches the light like a diamond. It is geometric perfection. It is a delicate thing, like a flower or a life. And it is, she realizes, the most perfect, the most beautiful thing she's ever seen. It explodes suddenly, even over the pounding rain she swears she hears a faint, muffled pop. It's gone. She stares at the empty air where it once floated, but she isn't seeing the air. She's actually looking inward and backward across the years. Images of her husband crowd her mind, and though she doesn't realize she's doing it, she's smiling, for he lives there, whole and perfect, a part of her soul that will never die. But what of this crazy quest he sent her on? What of that? He knew there was new Marvin Gardens here. He had to have known. Her husband was crazy smart that way. He was deliberate, not a cruel trick. He wasn't that kind of man. There is a lesson here, something she is meant to understand. But what? And then she thinks of the bubble, how it was beautiful and then gone. And she thinks of this world, how it too was once a thing of beauty. It dawns on her all at once, understanding, swelling inside her chest like a balloon until she can barely breathe, barely contain it. He gave her an impossible quest, not because he expected her to fail, but because he knew she would succeed. She would come to this point. The old world is gone, and though the new world, the world without him, is a little emptier, it is still a place for beauty, and a place to raise the little girl who is so much like her daddy. She looks out across the rain-swept pier to where her husband's body faces the open ocean, a noble in its vastness, and she thinks again of bubbles and smiles. Thank you, Joe, and thank you, Stephen. As mentioned, I'll give biographical details about Joe and Steve at the end of tonight's entertainments. Next up for your Stoker listening is Bruce Boston's Surrounded by the Mutant Rainforest. It is ably bodied forth by Stephen Thomas Howe. You're up, Bruce. Stephen? A weak December sun falls like a faltering beacon against the shadows that surround us. We enter another vine-choked alley, 
The red breath of our laser rifles sizzles through the intrusion of leaves, blackening them to ash. The forest is driven back one more time, but we know it will return. Once we lived as civilized residents of a civilized metropolis. Now we retreat, losing ground to the mutations of the wild. As their multifarious forms multiply, their mythology invades our lives. A compulsion for those who embrace the heresy of a bestial faith, a prison for those of us who resist the onslaught. We survive as a pocket of humanity in a deluge of green terror, cut off from the north, facing a relentless enemy from the south. Already, more than a third of the city has been abandoned to the wilds. On a routine sweep of the city center, I find her in a decaying sub-basement of the old opera house where the classic tragedies of Verdi and Donizetti had once been performed. The beam of my torch momentarily blinds her dark eyes, unaccustomed to the light. I can see from her stricken glance that she is one the mutant rainforest has made good use of. She has become a tragedy all her own. The stalk binding her bare body to the bare dirt, a curve both graceful and horrific as it clings to the base of her spine, resembles that of a mushroom, thick and spongy, white blotched by patches of grey. And she is now its naked human cap. My happenstance comrades roaming the deserted stage and hallways above sound the all clear. After a moment of indecision, I answer in kind, turn my torch away from her eyes, leaving her to the shadows of her damp fungal hermitage and whatever monstrosity she has become. Not a word is exchanged between us. Of course I recognize her in those flash seconds, despite the intervening years and how pale she has become. Yet it is only hours later, in the dim hall of the barracks, lying sleepless on my cot among the unending noise of sleeping men, snores and sighs, dream whimpers, that I replay the details of our past together. A wealthy landowner's daughter and the son of a servant, we had played together as children. The forest was distant then, no more than a threat, sometimes used to frighten us into obedience. We played together for hours and days on end, oblivious to our origins until time and age made them manifest, forcing the adult world into our existence. Then she left me behind for a life of rich parties and shopping sprees, private tutors and trips abroad, a privileged world I was never allowed to enter. Still, I watched from afar as the girl I had known began to mature into a woman, and fool that I was, I nurtured an adolescent infatuation that I called love. I embarked upon an awkward courtship, sending her furtive notes to which she never responded. I once stood beneath her lighted window with a cheap guitar and serenaded her with a cheap love song. Only the night answered, and eventually her father's rage. He insisted that such nonsense must come to an end. My thoughts had returned to her more than once over the years, wistful and unfulfilled. Now I wonder what hazardous course her life had taken that has transformed her into a prisoner and slave of the forest. 
I know that her father is no longer the wealthy landowner, that the forest has long since claimed his cultivated fields and mansion. Yet how has it seduced her when I had failed? Harboring vague regrets, I drift into a restless sleep. I wake to a scream engendered by someone's nightmare. I don't realize I am the culprit, the scream my own, until I hear the exclamations and curses of those around me that I have wakened. Whatever that dark dream, it instantly flees from my consciousness. Yet my troubled sleep has formed a resolution in my mind. I dress hurriedly in the dimness and make my way to our makeshift armory. There I choose a machete, wetted, razor sharp. When I test its edge, a small drop of blood pearls upon my finger. With my laser rifle strapped across my shoulder and the machete shoved in my belt, I enter the dark streets. It is a cold night and a bone-raking chill fills the air, heightened by a light yet steady wind from the south that carries the fragrances of the mutant rainforest into the city. Some claim that it is only this cold that protects us from the forest's ruthless onslaught. They say that with the rains of spring and the heat of summer, the mutations of the forest, both animal and vegetable, were five. They would grow more profligate and insistent, attacking with renewed vigor. Others of my kind, those who sleep by day and guard the city by night, now patrol the streets. I pass freely among them, nodding and exchanging greetings with those I know. I make my way to city center and the old opera house, a hulking shadow against a cloud-clotted sky that absorbs and diffuses the city lights. There are no stars visible. As I descend into the depths of the building, my torch guiding me, I begin to shiver. It seems even colder here than in the streets above. I have decided that I will either free her from the enslavement or end her life trying, for surely death is a fate preferable to the one she now endures. I find her, as I had before, in the same dank subterranean chamber. This time, as my torch exposes her naked body, she gives out a short, sharp cry, more avian than human, yet her eyes do not blink from the light. Instead, they meet mine in a grave and curious stare. I wonder if she knows who I am, if she recognizes me from our shared past. In my fatigues, with my untrimmed beard and shaggy hair, I appear a far different man than the youth she once knew, just as she must be a far different woman, if woman you could still call her. I wonder how much of her mind and thoughts remain, or if her human awareness has been completely stripped away by the forest. I approach her and raise the machete, yet as my arm descends to sever the stalk that binds her body to the dirt, she reaches out swiftly to grasp and hold my wrist with a strength I did not expect from her slender form. The blade falls from my hand. She rises up, her arms encircling my neck, and pulls me down toward her. She begins soundlessly showering my face and neck with kisses. And fool that I once was, fool that I remain, I fall to my knees beside her, dropping the torch returning her embrace. 
He rolls away, throwing his beam against the rough stone wall, leaving us in relative darkness. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Their flesh is not cold, but warm to the touch, radiating a heat all its own. Stripping the chill from my body. Her mouth and tongue are feverish and urgent. Lying by her side, I awkwardly remove my clothes with one hand, holding her close to me with the other. Although I do not know if she is human or an extension of the forest, it no longer matters. My reason is lost. My senses trapped by a rising passion that has endured for years without consummation. I begin whispering endearments to her in the dark, speaking her name over and again. She does not answer. No sound escapes her lips except for her heavy breathing and the sighs of passion. Then I enter her, and although my body and senses remain engaged in an act both terrifying and sublime, my mind and my vision are all at once traveling elsewhere. I take on the form of a great bird of keen eye and iridescent plumage sailing high above the earth, flying through the stratosphere, far higher than any bird has a right to fly. I see the continent spread beneath me, a mottled blanket of mutant infestation stretching forth from the Amazon basin to cover near half the land, its tentacles snaking north to the isthmus and south to Patagonia. I swoop lower and am suddenly plummeting downward, through dense green leaves and a riotous fluorescence of blossoms to the forest floor. I am a horned jaguar standing over sixteen hands high, gliding sinuously through the foliage, my nostrils flared, testing the fragrances of the thick night air in search of prey. I am a millipede python, dropping hundreds of feet through the tortuous branches of a towering mahogany onto the muscular back of that same jaguar my spurred legs digging through its fur and into its flesh, injecting a soporific venom. 
my body winding round its torso, crushing the breath from its body. I am a miniature winged albino monkey. No, a whole tribe of winged albino monkeys, a hive mind no larger than insects, fleeting and leaping and chattering through the highest branches of that same tree. I am a copse of huge black and gold orchids being devoured to extinction by a herd of ravaging tapirs, their variegated hides shading by saffron and amber and celadon. It is as if through the union of our bodies, the forest and its manifold incarnations are speaking to me, immersing me in their beauty and their horror. I am imbued with the sentience of the forest. Not a singular sentience, as some believe, but a thousand warring ones that conspire to a whole, eliciting an overriding consciousness that wars against the world at large, as if the acts of slaughter and consumption within its borders, the endless round of creation and death and recreation, provided with further sustenance and growth. And as my final thrusts within her seal our union, I am hurled from the sum of that consciousness into exhaustion and down the black well of a dead sleep. And it is blackness to which I awaken. I have no idea how many minutes or hours have passed. The batteries in the torch have run down while I slept and we lie together in complete darkness. I try to rise only to find her body rising with me, pulling me back to the earth. I feel a sharp pain along my chest and stomach and thighs. I cry out and she cries with me in that same piercing avian tone I heard before. Reaching between us, I feel the ropey fungal tendrils that have spread from her flesh into mine. In rising panic, I grapple for the machete, but wherever it has fallen, it is beyond my reach. It is probably useless in any case. Even if I could stand the pain of severing those tendrils, I am no doubt already as infected as she. So I wait in the dark, bound irretrievably to a lover I have desired and sought for so long, or at least a simulacrum of that lover, just as I am bound to the mind of the forest. Already I can feel my individual thoughts becoming increasingly cloudy and intoxicated, and I know this is how they will find us, with their laser rifles in hand, unless our forest finds them first. Thank you, Bruce, and thank you, Steve. Finally this week, Mr. Jacob Boris will read John Palisano's Available Light. Listen, my children, and you shall hear. The thing that fell from the sky also returned, also went back. 
By my sixth birthday, I'd become the neighborhood monstrosity. This, in no small part, had to do with the red blotches dotting my pale skin, the aftermath of my Aunt June having allowed me to play unsupervised with my cousins for too long. She didn't believe my parents after they told her about my rare disorder. Sunlight could sicken, weaken, and kill me. Aunt June thought it was something they'd made up. It's not real, Cousin Antonio said. It's all inside your head, and we're going to find out right now. A test. He lifted the blind to peek, and the sliver-sized sun ray grazed my wrist, burning yellow splotches onto my skin. No! I yelled, cowering away from the sunlight. Aunt June slammed the door open and found us. I expected her to help. She grabbed Antonio by the arm and pulled him away. This is ridiculous, she said. How can they expect me to watch a child that needs such attention? When she came back for me, she pulled me up by my arm, which stung terribly. She wrinkled her pointy nose and she rolled my sleeves over my arms. They left with such a fuss made so much noise that all the neighborhood children heard their curses and judgments as they hurried away from our house. I was no longer a person in their minds, but a horrible tragedy they could brag about during one of their dress-up martini parties. Antonio and Aunt June would never again visit us. My parents immediately went about boarding up and sealing our house. My mother's ears seemed as allergic to sound as my skin was to light. Mama Agatha could hear the tenderest footstep. If I so much as stepped from my bed after nine o'clock, she would send my father to check after me. If I asked about my mother, he'd quickly dismiss my question. She's fine, he'd say, just under the weather. I'm glad, I told him. Then he unscrewed the little brown bottle with extra sweet syrup inside. Your mother keeps this for you when you can't sleep, he said. Every window shade and curtain needed to be checked and rechecked. There was no rest without making sure light couldn't leak inside. The edge of the doors had to be sealed off. The windows in the hallways leading to the bathroom were similarly prepared. In our home, nothing escaped scrutiny. My parents were always extra careful. Sunlight could kill you my father said. You need to believe that. At the very least, it will burn your tender skin and might bring on a painful allergy attack. Longer exposure can be fatal. I pictured myself with my eyes pinched close and my throat swollen so small I'd barely be able to breathe. My extremities would bloat and my brain would swell dangerously. If my body absorbed enough of the happy yellow rays, I would die. Just before the first drizzles of rain appeared, my temples throbbed. My body usually felt any changes in weather long before anything was visible. I was happy. Rain meant freedom. No sunlight. If the storm lasted. I did not want to find myself outside if the storm clouds broke. Waiting until late afternoon seemed smarter. If the storm passed and the clouds blew back, night would have already come and there'd be nothing to worry about. Where would I go? 
two places. First, I would go to Charlie's convenience store before they closed. I might pick out a treat for myself and a chocolate bar for Cassia. He loved them, of course. Not once could I risk telling our parents about giving them to him. They'd probably die. The goodies stayed our secret. Second place I opted to visit was always Grand Comics, which was only a five-minute walk from my house, and Nils kept late hours, meaning I could visit after dark. The other local stores closed early. There wasn't a strong enough business to keep them open past six in Whistleville, so I always looked forward to my visits. Rarely was anyone else in the store besides me, and those folks never seemed to buy anything. I noticed many of them left with their own bags, though. One man, close to Nils in age, always left carrying a big blue gym bag. The thing must have weighed a ton, judging the way he carried it. I imagine he must have been up to something no good. He sure wasn't making a living from ringing up my occasional books. There had to be something else. You got this one? That was the first thing he said to me when I walked in. Nils held up a paperback. He stood behind the glass display counter, near his register. A stick of patchouli incense burned on the shelf behind Nils. But anyone walking inside would still smell the dry paper from the old books and comics. No, I hurried towards him. Most of the items Nils carried were well-loved, so I was especially intrigued when he handed me what appeared to be a brand new paperback. There was a painting of a woman with long red hair on the cover. Dark Moon, Simon Hughes. Having never heard of Simon Hughes, I turned the book around in my hand to see if there was a picture. There wasn't. I recognized the publisher and saw that they'd classified it as action on the spine. I didn't recall owning, or ever having seen, a book categorized that way. I had to have it. After paying Nils the dollar, he said, More where those came from, he said. Got plenty if you want to read them. Cool, I said. This'll keep me up through the night. How's your mom and dad doing up there? You know I could see a house when I go back. See the top of it poking right out over the trees. Really? Sure. You could wave to me if you ever needed to. I never see any lights on after a certain time, though. Well, I said, my mom's got that condition, after all. It's time you meet your brother. Which was why I found myself staring at what I believed to be the skull of a small animal. Only it was much more than just its head. The entire rest of the thing's devastated body was still attached, and the thing still had enough life in it to turn its head and move its legs. We'd like for you to take care of him now, my father said. You're mature enough to handle the responsibility. Wasn't I old enough before? I asked. Maybe, he said. The time is right. My father always came off so cold and brittle when he spoke. It was always business, business, business with him. What about you two? Aren't you going to help? I don't even know what to do. None of this seems real to me. My mother knelt down, 
touched my wrist, and placed a second hand on Cassia. I'm here for you, she said. Of course. Her breath smelled sour and sick. Something was wrong with her. Not one, but two dark puffs circled her eyes. Cassia looked up at me. The poor, weak creature could barely lift his head. I wanted to help. What is he? He doesn't look like a person, I asked my father. The thing's yellow, mottled skin intrigued me because it appeared either plucked, clean, or slightly bruised. Your brother, he said. I locked eyes with the creature. I don't have a brother, I said. I'm thirteen years old, so don't you think I'd know if I had a brother? My mother came into the doorway of my room, her fingertips touching together in front of her belly. It's true, Walter. This is him. Cassia. She looked over to my father, and then back to me. That's what happens when one of you are left in the light. That's why we need to keep you in the low available light of the night instead. Sunlight did this? I asked. My mother hesitated before shaking her head. The thing. Cassia. My brother pressed one of his limbs toward me, petting my side. The touch was gentle and slow. Watching his face, Cassia, his eyes were the same bluish-gray as mine and my parents. So what were we supposed to do? I didn't know how to take care of such a dreamlike creature as Cassia, and I imagine he was much more used to the level of attention our parents had given him. Why are you making me do this? I asked. My mother tightened her jaw. There are just some things we have to do in life that we don't want to do. Realize it's just the way of the world. Better you find out now rather than later. My father chimed in. We wouldn't want you to get spoiled. Nothing good can come out of a boy who grows too used to always getting things served to him in a silver plate. What am I going to get out of this other than that? Cassia watched me, his eyes wet and curious. Did he know me? Could he have realized that he was in his brother's arms? There was a strange connection, and there was certainly no doubt in my mind that he'd made the connection. The thing that fell from the sky also returned, also went back. Many things can change when you're thinking of someone else first. Tears of selfish sorrow no longer dried on my skinny cheeks. Instead, I spent endless days and nights caring for Cassia. He needed constant concierge. I was his watchman, nurse, and soon memorized every delicate inch of his being. Cassia couldn't rest until his head was propped. There was no going to the bathroom like normal people. His biology was distilled to its very essence. Several odd appendages lingered from his low quarters. Each expelled its own noxious fluids. My mother explained to me what each meant, but I was soon too tired to remember or care. There was a large ship 
on the sky that sounds like gray thunder. Cassia looked as though he'd soon pass on. How could they inflict him onto me when our time together would be so short? They must have known what they were doing. Maybe they wished for his last weeks to be spent with someone who hadn't grown weary of his complete dependence. Another guess. Nursing him through death may have been too much for them. The last possibility, and one very much wished for by myself, had Cassia healing and strengthening, due in no small part to my detailed attention and regimen. There were several weeks where I no longer went down to the comic book shop. I missed Nils and his strange recommendations. I read the shade book three times cover to cover. Each night, once Cassia fell asleep, I was able to escape into the comforting world inside those pages. Quickly, I found myself drawn to the main character, Samuel, and had developed some vivid thoughts about what his girlfriend Luna may have looked like. I wished I was as cool as Samuel with those quick-wired comebacks and the way he kept a few steps ahead of everyone else. If only I were as clever. As allergic as my body happened to be from light, so my own mother seemed to be from noise. She'd gone great lengths to block as much sound from the house as she could. Noise distracts me, she'd complain, and brings on migraines severe enough I might die. Her cold, thin hands would grasp mine. Her eyes would search me for the right signs of sympathy. I always found it curious that her liquors never seemed to bring on the migraines, but rather she claimed they loosed her blood and allowed her to relax. My mother purchased special curtains with extra padding. They'll block out the light for you, she said, and mute the traffic and screaming. The neighborhood has changed into a zoo. When she had one of her spells, we all learned to walk silently and to lower our whispers. Reading was an ideal entertainment for me. Silent on the outside, but inside there were rocket launches. Gun battles, racing cars, fist fights. All red with whatever light available to me. Sometimes my eyes felt supercharged, highly sensitive, and sting tears would water my face. Condition to live in low light caused my complexion to lighten considerably. Often my thoughts turned to my memories. My cousin and I used to gather each Sunday at our grandparents' house on Court Street. We'd all sit underneath a canopy of grapevines. Us kids had our own small table while the adults were up on their large green wooden table. Keeping track of which story belonged to whom became trying. So many shared experiences caused details to bleed together. Even the voices merged inside my head. It'd been such a long time since I'd last seen everyone and I'd been very small when I had. That was before sunlight was poison. My mother told me once how such a tragic allergy got me. You almost died on your fourth birthday, she said. The doctors and nurses tried everything to revive you. You had shellfish lobster, and your throat swelled up, 
Your eyes. You went black and blue on me. Then white. I had no recollection of the event. But by the way, my mother had wrung her hands and kept having to catch her breath. I could tell it still affected her deeply. They used a new drug on you. Untested. Nobody knew if it would work. Nobody knew what it could do as far as side effects. We found out. After you pulled through, of course. You were at the beach with us and your skin broke out in red hives. We brought you to the emergency room. We thought you'd got stung by a horseshoe crab or a water snake or maybe some kind of insect bite. We weren't sure. They gave you a hydrocortisone shot, but the hives grew. We opened the windows in the room and the way you reacted... She told me about the priests that came in and tried to bless me. They thought I'd been possessed because I'd screamed to get away from the light. But none of them were right for the longest time. It was your father who looked at you and commented that you were sweating so much and that your skin looked shiny, like it was sunburnt. Your sweat glistened even in the moonlight. We shut the shade so you could sleep. We kept them closed the next day, and you improved for the first time in weeks. From then on, that was the last we ever let the shades open. I pictured that moonlight streaming through the hospital window. I imagined that moment even though I don't remember it. I wish I'd never gotten that vaccine. I'd do anything to change that moment. Was Cassia with me during that time? Had I blocked him out? Was he, too, changed from the vaccines? No one would tell me the truth. My father would just sing me the same riddle. The thing that fell from the sky will also go back. Again and again he'd repeat that. To me, his song made no sense whatsoever. If he was referring to Cassia and the idea of Cassius somehow floating up towards the sun was impossible. If he had the same allergy as me, then surely rising toward the sun would quickly kill him. What did he mean by something falling from the sky? Was it some kind of metaphor? Like a fairy tale? Because that's precisely what I imagined it to be. Discomfort and pain couldn't dissuade me. Grand Comics helped me find myself. I always thought that there were places better than where we lived. The comics and books Neil suggested each had elements lurking just underneath their text if you looked carefully enough. That, of course, took time. I didn't have a whole bunch to spare, not with caring for Cassia. Once my parents found out how good I was at taking care of my brother, they left his care almost entirely to me. Soon thereafter... I had very little time to spare for reading anything. The storm was a shelter. It was as if God had grasped the world like a baseball, and wherever his fingers landed, huge indentations occurred. Oceans rushed in to fill the gaps, and the newly minted landscapes seemed at once both fresh and broken. The high-pitched songs of the late summer insects played between the rumbling thunder. 
even after several cracks came uncomfortably close and the sky gurgled. They sang. I wondered about where they might go, other than outside. I imagined them marching under my house, inside my basement through some unknown hidden mini-passage. I yawned and kneeled over toward Cassia. He slept soundly, and he did not know what was happening. Whooshing sounds swirled around us. Our house shook against pummeling winds. Hold on, Cassia, I said. It's going to pass. My promise was broken moments later, when a large section of our roof peeled away as though it were made of paper. Up and above us, the large spinning gray funnel fed the asphalt tiles from our roof to the sky. Near the center, hovering barely within sight, the large gray bulbous ship I'd seen earlier. Holding Cassia with all my might against the winds now invading our room, I pointed up. Do you see that up there? I said, my voice disappearing into the noise. Cassia would not raise his head from my arm. There had to be a connection to the ship and Cassia. Something was much too odd. We did not get tornadoes. We did not have weather like what we were seeing. They'd come to find Cassia. They wanted him back. The rain blanketed down but did not come inside. How was this possible? I can't be sure. Most of our roof had gone and a spinning funnel hovered directly above us. Everything should have been soaked and destroyed. An inhuman wretch sounded over all the other noise. Cassio wriggled in my arms. His body had changed. The rotten, molting skin smoldered in a heap on Mama's prized carpet. Mama? I thought none of her worry about fancy floors, paint colors, and what her acquaintances might think meant anything. She could have spent her last days doing just about anything else other than worrying. Look at her spent, dead body. The only thing I could think of was that life wasn't going to pass me by. That I was going to live every second as best and full as could be. Then Cassio wriggled towards me. Sprouting flames and fire from his mouth and nose like a dragon man from hell's inferno. His hair had gone, but he had new hair down the side of his head that covered from his temples, past his ears, and down. The immediate top of his head was clean, and his skin had turned the same color as muscle. The thing that fell from the sky also returned, also went back. My skin itched and burned. Standing away from Cassia, scared and frightened, my back touched the hallway wall. My eyes only left my brother for a moment, because as I scratched my palms, wetness coated my fingertips and nails. Blood? No. Cloudy plasma oozed from minute cracks in my skin. Maybe Cassia dripped on me while still in my arms. Wiping my hands together... Sharp, paper-cut stings filled my hands. What could this new sensation be? Where was this thing coming from? Above us, the vehicle I'd seen earlier hovered nearer, 
so that I was able to see details more clearly. Unlike most flying machines I'd ever seen, this vehicle's very shape moved and changed. Watching it closely for a moment, every instinct told me that the thing was somehow alive. What I'd believed to be some kind of metallic skin was, for all appearances, some type of alien skin. Possibly this substance was a building material unknown to mankind, but common with wherever the vehicle originated. Cassia inched closer to the middle of the hallway and let out a guttural yelp. His deformed mouth opened as wide as it would go, and every inch of me seemed to remember the endless feedings. My senses remembered exactly how his mealy flesh had felt, how his spongy lips felt with a spoon gently delivering him his soup. It was possible, and probable, that I would never again experience that sensation, and that this was his ride come to fetch him to his true home. Looking down at my arms, my very skin oozed and melted away from me. Drooping stringlets of colored flesh, blood and nerve wavered in the whirlwind. The shape reminded me very much of dripping candle wax, although the source was my own body. And where would the flames be, and how could I extinguish it? What else would the following moments have waiting for me? And there was Nils, standing in the doorway, drenched and holding a soaking wet book. This material world brings no relief from death. It is a sad world where we spread our amber spotlights only for the monstrous, to gaze upon the unfamiliar flesh. Monsters are the normal. Man is cold and heartless. We become rich, so we can tune it all out. My precious, wish baby. Cassius stood, and I immediately could see something was different with him. The yellow shade I'd grown so used to darkened. He's burning, I thought. But Cassius stood, and for the first time before me, stretched out his arms. The skin between his arms and body appeared connected. As he raised his arms toward the storm, the wrinkled folds spread out. He turned to look at me, which was a miracle, as he could hardly have moved his own head before. Meanwhile, each and every moment I attempted felt more and more labored. All of my strength faded. The sun robbed me of it. Our fractured existence. Zero Derma. Pigmentosum. The enzymes in my skin can't fix the damage done to my DNA by ultraviolet light. That's the way the doctors put things. Photosensitivity. Like Gigi. Like Cassia. Spotty red bumps erupt on the tops of my arms and hands. My body will always wear those scars. My skin will always tell my story. If... It doesn't dry and burn and turn to ash. Persistent light reactivity. I have to react. I cannot change things, despite trying, despite wishing, despite believing every positive thing possible. Nope. The blisters rise in the sun, the rays toxic to the proteins in my epidermis. The world turned dark. People changed.
everywhere around me, screaming and hollering echoed. Loud music bumped through the walls. Selfishness and arrogance are worn on people as if they were courageous. Their smug smiles and quick-witted use of put-ons and insults for every interaction made me wonder if we've always been this way. What would the world be known for now? What would it be? What could it be? Broad-spectrum light testing. Mommy brought me in for this, where they took small little swatches of light on the tops of my hands to see what my body would do. It did the same thing then as it did now. Blistered, burned, itched, and hurt. And I think of how the two moments are connected. First, I had no choice but to go to the doctor with Mommy and see what caused my pain. Now, nobody's idea but my own. No one to blame. Should know better. Should think twice. Think things through. Can't. Not always. Not usually. Hardly ever. Our fractured existence inherited through generations of manipulated abuses within our family. All of it adds towards madness. Every willing moment. Through our opened roof, overflowing with sunlight as my skin spotted, Cassia carried me towards the light, unafraid, willing, changing, and new. His body strengthened, born again in the bright rays as much as my own was weakened. I swear it took all the strength I had just to keep my eyes open. I looked up to Cassia, who smiled down at me. The gaunt, tired face I'd grown so used to was now changed. The deathly pale blue eyes had brightened. His thin lips were full. His features extraordinary. His arms felt strong and firm as he carried me. I knew I was now becoming the very thing Cassia once was to me. Something that would need tending. Something that would need constant care. Maybe, I thought. Wherever we're going, he might be able to cure me. Where will the light catch? On rays of floating yellow beams. In dreams of cloudy panes we watch. Syrupy things drip down off me from around and on top. My eyes open wide. A willing heart to let it all happen. My new beginning. The thing that fell from the sky. I will return. I will go back. The end. And thank you, John, and thank you, Jake. Now, a few words, and if you know me, you know there are going to be more than a few, but here are some words about our storytellers and those who've told their tales. 
Joe McKinney, author of Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens, lives in San Antonio, Texas. He's a San Antonio police sergeant. Particular to tonight's offering, Joe, of course, is a writer of horror, crime, and science fiction. His short stories and novellas have been published in more than 30 publications and anthologies. His longer works include the four-part Dead World series. The parts are Dead City, Apocalypse of the Dead, Flesh Eaters, and The Zombie King. He also wrote the science fiction disaster tale Quarantined, which was Stoker-nominated in 2009, and the crime novel Dodging Bullets. Upcoming and recent releases include the horror novels Lost Girl of the Lake, The Red Empire, and The Charge. With Michelle McCrary, Joe edited the zombie-themed anthology Dead Set, and with Mark Onspaw, The Forsaken, an abandoned building-themed anthology, and I can't wait to get my hands on that one. Stephen Kilpatrick read Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens this evening. Stephen's a relatively new voice here at Tales to Terrify. He lives in Virginia and has a culinary arts degree. He's an avid fan of fiction, of hiking, and of board games. How appropriate. In addition to his work as a customer service professional, he recently began volunteering in prisons. Most recently, Stephen read O.D. Haygray's it's just tearing me all apart in show 69. Bruce Boston is a native Chicagoan and proud we all are of him too. Now he lives elsewhere. Bruce's poetry and fiction have appeared in Asimov Science Fiction Magazine, Amazing Stories, Realms of Fantasy, Strange Horizons, Weird Tales, The Pedestal Magazine, The Twilight Zone Magazine, Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, The Nebula Award Showcase, and literally hundreds more. He's also won three, maybe four million awards including the Bram Stoker Award, the Asimov's Reader's Award for Poetry, and the Risling Award of the Science Fiction Poetry Association, the SFPA. And he has won each of them a record number of times. He's also received a Pushcart Prize for Fiction and the Grand Master Award of the SFPA. In addition, he holds the distinction of having appeared in more issues of Asimov's science fiction than any other author. And he coined the word cybertext. Bruce has published 50 books and chapbooks, including the novels The Gardener's Tale and Stained Glass Rain. He says his best stories are collected in Mask of Dreams, his best poetry in Sensuous Debris, Pitch Blend, and Dark Matters. Bruce lives in Ocala, Florida with his wife, writer-artist Marge Simon, this year also up for a poetry stoker. That makes for an interesting home life, I'm sure. And the ghosts of two cats. Currently, in addition to writing, Bruce is an acquisition and book editor for Dark Regions Press. Surrounded by the Mutant Rainforest was read for us tonight by Stephen Thomas Howell. Steve's become quite a regular here at Tales to Terrify. 
He's a former career soldier who is now in Mufti and begins to sound the depths of that which he will profess. That is to say, he's working to get into a master's writing program, and I wish him all the best. And John Palisano, author of Available Light, was one of those guys who grew up, like so many of us, on late-night movies and drive-in theater experiences. After college, John moved to Los Angeles and took an internship with Ridley Scott. Nice internshipping, if you can get it, which he describes as a phenomenal time in his life. He worked on many big-budget films and got to see how the films that he grew up with came together. Being in that hotbox, he says, he wrote lots of scripts at an option or three and produced a couple of low-budget films. Something happened, though, he says. The movies that he worked on often came out so differently than the ideas that were on the pages. Ah, yes. Compromises of so many kinds. Well, with writing stories, the only limit is the imagination. However, it was harder, he said, to place a pro-level fiction piece than it was to get financing for his first film. And all these years later, he says, he finally saw the release of his novel Nerves from Bad Moon Books in the winter of 2012. In the meantime, lots of John Palisano's short stories will appear soon, and several movie projects are in the works. Available Light was narrated tonight by Jacob Boris. Jake was born and raised in the heartland of America. He is a college student at Indiana University and is the son of Mike Boris, who has voiced many, many tales at the Starship and elsewhere in the District of Wonders. Jacob says he's excited to be experiencing his first real forays into narration and that he's still in the my voice sounds like that phase. <sighs> yeah, well, I'm still in that one. But he enjoys the opportunity nonetheless. So, thank you, everyone, all the writers, all the readers. Thanks. And to you, Joe, Bruce, and John, Best wishes in New Orleans next month. Next week, we'll present Weston Oaks and Lucy Snyder's Stoker-nominated short fiction pieces for the year 2012. But that will be that for this week. Apologies, by the way, for the weather. It's in the 50s now. It was in the 90s earlier in the week, muggy and awful. Those were the days that surrounded the Oklahoma tornado, in fact. And, in fact, the people in that part of the world can use our help. I don't want to short-circuit your impulse now to go to our website at TalesToTerrify.com and contribute to the running of Tales to Terrify, but tonight... Tonight, why don't you contact the Red Cross, see what they need with regards to the people in Moore, Oklahoma. Well, think about it. As you wander home tonight, just think about it. Disaster can happen anywhere, anytime. So you could pay it all forward a bit. Go home. 
Go to your computing machines. Go to redcross.org and see what they need. Money, certainly. Blood, probably. Then do what you can. It will certainly inspire some pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.